Well, good morning. My name is Brandon, by the way. If, uh, if you're new here, I'm glad, I'm glad you decided to join us this morning. So the question that was voted on last week for this morning is, why should Christians wait until marriage? And this is, uh, this, is, this is a good question. Why should Christians wait until marriage? I asked my good friend, Tony uh, Roos, I used to work with him over in France one time, I said, hey, would you give me a one sentence piece of advice for young adults who are dating? And he said, don't undo the buckle till the rings pass the knuckle. <laughs> and <laughs> I cracked me. Why should Christians wait until marriage? It's, uh, it's a good question because this notion is very countercultural. Uh, this is not how people think these days. Most Americans, especially my age and younger, think that you know, sex before marriage, it's not only okay, but it's actually good. You, you should, right? The thinking is, is like this. Listen, you wouldn't, you wouldn't buy a car without test driving it first, would you? Or you wouldn't buy a home without getting a feel for whether or not you like the neighborhood, would you? So you, you should, not just can, you should have sex uh, before you got, get married. You want to make sure you're compatible. Uh, you, and in fact, you should live together too. You got to make sure this thing's going to work. How else are you going to figure out if, you know, if you, how the person's breath smells in the morning and what they sound like when they chew their food and if they actually get their clothes into the hamper? You got to make sure. This, what if you're oil and water and you're not competitive? You got to make sure this thing. So uh, this, is, this is kind of how we think today as Americans. And it's despite the fact that the odds are stacked against you. If you engage in premarital sex, if you cohabitate or live together, the odds are actually stacked against you. Now, we've, we've all got anecdotes to the contrary, for sure. We, we all know that one couple that had multiple partners, and, and they, they lived together first, and they didn't do anything according to those old, outdated, antiquated traditions, and they still lived a long, happy life. And we also know that one couple who did, who, they did everything right, and, 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 and they waited for each other, and that boy, they still ended up in divorce. Of course there are stories. Of course, but, but those people, you know, when we're dealing in probabilities, there's always exceptions. There's always outliers. Statistically, now study after study has shown, has shown that people who cohabitate or live together before marriage have a way higher likelihood of divorce. Statistics have shown, study after study, that people who have sex before marriage have a higher likelihood of divorce. In fact, the number of partners before marriage correlates directly to the likelihood of divorce. The, the, the more partners, the more the odds are stacked against you, the higher likelihood you have to end up divorced. It turns out God's not stupid. Turns out his way is actually the best way. And now no one wants to plan their divorce when you're going into a new relationship. No one, no one gets excited, you know, first we're gonna get married, maybe, I don't know, maybe we'll have some kids, maybe we'll, do, maybe we'll have the kids first and then we'll get married, you know, we'll, we'll do things, but here's what I'm really excited about. One day it's gonna end in this messy divorce and we're gonna lose a bunch of money and we're gonna fight and our kids are gonna get hurt about it and our whole family's gonna be stressed. No, no one plans their divorce. Uh, 
but it seems to happen more often than not. So this is a good question. Why should Christians wait until marriage? And I especially like the word why in that question, right? Because for most of us who grew up with at least some exposure to the church, we knew that Christians should wait until marriage. But as to, to why, I don't know. I never feel like I, I got that good of a, an explanation as, as the why. And when the why is unclear, uh, the, the how is always going to miss the mark. In almost anything, if you understand what you're supposed to do, but you don't really understand why you're supposed to do it, how you end up doing it will always be hollow. As is in the case of sexual integrity, uh, you can have a long list of stuff you're not supposed to do, but if you don't understand why, you can totally miss the point. You, we can create a life that looks good on the outside, but it's totally dead on the inside. And then if we all do that, what happens? We'll create a culture. Together, we'll have our own little subculture that cares more about what's on the outside than what's on the inside. And uh, that's, that's not how Jesus did business. <laughs> no, Jesus always goes for the heart. What's on the inside? All right, because that's where the real stuff lives, in here. None of this shiny on the outside, dead on the inside stuff. The Bible has a name for a group of people that are like that. They're called Pharisees. And we don't want to be like them. <laughs> so what's the why behind this? The question is, why should Christians wait until marriage? And that, that's a question that touches a, a small percentage of, of us, of our population here. I think a better question would be, why should Christians pursue sexual integrity? Why, why is that a better question? It's because it's, it's all of us, isn't it? That touches all of us. So why should Christians pursue sexual integrity? Paul, in, in one of his letters to the church in Corinth, gives us what I believe to be a very profound a very compelling why. And what Paul's going to do, this is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. What Paul's going to do, he's going to uh, interact a little bit with the popular thought of the day, how, how the Corinthians, the, the, the Greeks in this city, thought. He's going to respond to that with seven axiomatic truths as to why Christians should pursue sexual integrity. And then he's going to give a two-part principle for how to pursue sexual integrity. So what I would like to do is read this verse completely through, and then I would, I would like us all to pray and ask God to help us understand this correctly and, 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 and open our hearts uh, to what God might have to say through this text. And then I'd like to examine each verse, just one at a time, uh, that we might uh, really get a rich theology of sex and sexual integrity. We need, we need a rich theology here, not a shallow practice. So Paul writes, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, sorry, chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. Would you pray with me now? Now, Jesus, on this difficult topic, we have read what your servant Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth, Greece, 2,000 years ago. I ask now that you would help us to understand what he meant then, that we might skim the cream off the top here, Lord, the good, the theology that rises up, Lord, the transcendent principles that were true then and are just as true now and help us to apply them rightly to our lives. Give us soft hearts now, God. Could we, God, let you be king now and authoritative in our lives, and we be the servants who listen well. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so Paul, he begins by quoting what were maybe some Corinthian slogans, and they represent their attitude towards sexual integrity. And you'll notice that some of, some of this thought will sound pretty familiar. You'll notice that we today live in a very Corinthian culture, if you will. He starts off, verse 12, the first slogan he quotes, all things are lawful for me. This is the, I have the right to do whatever I want argument. I, I have the right to do whatever I want with, with my body. I have the right to do whatever I want sexually. And Paul says, yeah, you do, but not all things are helpful. Yeah, all things are, 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 are lawful. You have the right, but not all things are helpful. Like I could, if I really set my mind to it, I could probably eat a snowblower, but it wouldn't be beneficial. It wouldn't be, help, it wouldn't be good for my body. So yes, all, yeah, you have the right, but is it actually helpful? And then he says, all things are lawful for me. But Paul says, yeah, me too, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
Okay, I, won't be, I don't want to be mastered. I, won't, I don't want to be enslaved by anything. Paul understands that true freedom means, means not being enslaved by anything. True freedom doesn't necessarily say, uh, the, the, this is what I can do. True freedom says, even though I can do this, I don't have to. Even though I, can, even though I have the right, I don't, I don't have to do that. I'm not bound by that. Verse 13, he says, then, there's another quote, of, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So first they, had the, um, first they had the, I have the right to do whatever I want argument. Uh, next is the natural argument. Yeah, right? This is the notion that sex is nothing more than a natural bodily function. That's it. You know, if you're hungry, you eat something. If something itches, you scratch it. And if you have a sexual desire, you, you satisfy that, that thing. It's just what we do. We're mammals. You act on that. We're mammals. That's it. That's it. Right? Just like food in the stomach, they're just meant for each other. What, what the implication is is that sex organs and sexual appetites, they're, they're meant for each other, and it's no big deal. Food's meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then the second part of the quote, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, I do not agree with the English Standard Version that the quotation should stop after food. The NIV renders this more faithfully to put the quotation after uh, other. And God will destroy both one and the other because this is also representative of Greek thought of the day. Right, so they had the, I got the right to do whatever I want argument. They got the sex is nothing but a natural bodily function argument. And then here uh, is, is the, is the my body and what I do with it doesn't really matter argument. The my, my body is temporary argument. This is Greek thought, right? The body was unimportant and the spirit was important. And when you died, the body's discarded and the spirit would live on. And that thinking was infiltrating the Christian thought. And, and so therefore, if the body's unimportant, the spirit is, is important. And what I do with my body, it doesn't really matter here. Right? That's, that's the Corinthian thought about sex. I have the right to do whatever I want with my body. Sex is nothing more than a natural bodily function. And what I do with my body here, it doesn't actually matter. <laughs> Does this start to sound familiar to you? What's another culture you can think of that, that, that thinks along the same, same lines? So Paul responds to that, and he gives seven truths. Now, no one can remember a list of seven things. Just try to go to the grocery store with seven things to remember. You're not going to do it. So I, but I want to give this list because the list will paint a bigger picture. Paul responds to the Corinthian thought with seven axiomatic truths. Number one, the purpose of your body is not to indulge sexual desire, but to enjoy Jesus. Uh, the second part of verse 13 says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, right? They said the stomach's meant for food, food for the stomach, right? It's just, it's just a, a natural bodily function. Paul says, no, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, the body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The second, second thing Paul points out is that your body is not temporal nor insignificant, but eternally significant. Verse 14, he says, he says, and God 
raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. The Corinthians thought, man, this is the, the body. It doesn't really matter. It's insignificant. What I do with my body here doesn't matter. And Paul says, no, God has glorious, eternal purpose for your body. Your body is more precious than you could know. And what you do with it here does matter. God will not destroy your body, as the Corinthians thought, but raise it up. Your body is eternally significant. Number three, your body, if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, your body is a part of Jesus' body. Verse 15, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Meaning, do you know, that, that, that word there is body parts. Do you not know that somehow your body is actually a part of Jesus' body? He says, so, so, so apply that logic to sex. Should you, if, if, if my body is part of Jesus' body, should I then take Jesus' body part here and, and, and join it to a prostitute, make it a member of a prostitute? He says, never. I mean, that's completely incongruent. Can you imagine taking a part of Jesus and joining him with sexual immorality? It's completely incongruent. Number four, Paul points out that in sex, then, you are profoundly joined to the other person. Verse 16, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, this is Genesis 2.24, the two will become one flesh. This is God's design. This is why marriage and sex exist. This is how it's supposed to work. Therefore, a man should leave his mother, uh, mother and father, hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. And so when we, when we have sex with someone, there is this bonding thing. And it doesn't mean that anyone who has sex with another person is automatically married to that person. What Paul means here is that there is a profound bonding, a profound bonding when you have sex with a person, which, which I believe science has confirmed this physiologically. With, when we are intimate, and it starts, it starts with the romantic atmosphere, and then the, the touch increases it, and the closer we get, and, and all culminating in sex, the body releases hormones like oxytocin and dopamine, and, and, and they're literally, your body is literally wired to make you love someone more, feel more love for someone, feel more connected to someone. Your body is literally wired to bond with someone through sex. And now this is part of the problem of stoking that fire before you're married because the release of those hormones, it just dumps kind of a cocktail of of love and feel-good hormones into, into your, your body, and it will, it will dull your logic. And you, you will overlook and ignore red flags in the person's character that you normally would have heeded had you been thinking clearly. 
(laughs) Sex before marriage will help you make poor decisions on who you marry. Guaranteed. And God literally wired us to bond deeply through sex. And that's just the physiological part. Not to mention the deep soul and spirit connection that two people have through sex. So number, number five, then, in Christ, your spirit is profoundly joined to God's spirit. Verse 17, he says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Do you follow that? When Jesus saves you and he makes you alive, he doesn't make you alive on an island alone. No, the most glorious mystery that exists is that in Christ, we are one with God. Our lives are fused to God's life somehow. So, in Christ, your spirit is profoundly joined to God's spirit. And then number six, sex is uniquely self-destructive. Verse 18 Paul writes, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is according to Paul, in some way, other sins, they they hurt other people, but with sexual sin, you hurt yourself in some unique way. And I believe it's because of the deeply spiritual nature of sex, the deeply inside nature of sex and what happens and what it's designed to be between us and another person and so on. Okay, so sexual sin is uniquely self-destructive. And then he says, or do you, uh, right, because it's, it's, other sins are outside the body, but, but you know, sexual sin is inside the body. Uh, or do you not know, here's his reasoning why, verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You see, the body, our body, our body's so important, our body houses the Spirit, so Christ, in Christ, we are bonded to God. We're one spirit with God. This is Paul's logic. Are you, are you starting to follow the, 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 weave this logic together? In Christ, we are bonded to God. We are one spirit with God. In sex, we are bonded. We become one body with the other person. That's Paul's logic here. That's his why behind sexual integrity. Do you ever notice that when someone says, I've got something... In my past, I've never told anyone. It's, it's almost always something sexual. You notice that? Oh, the f- food's for the stomach. The stomach's for food. No one ever says, hey, listen, I got to tell you something. I got to get this off my chest. I've never told anyone. Five years ago, I ate a sandwich so big, you wouldn't believe it. it no. It's all, almost always something sexual. Why? Because it's, it's in here, in a sacred place. And, and even in ways that other sins aren't in here. There's, there's a way that other sins don't touch this sacred place that sexual sin does. Finally, number seven, Paul says, your body, it doesn't belong to you. Why? Because Jesus 
gave his body for you. The end of verse 19, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. What's that price? For God so loved the world he gave home, his only son. Jesus took the cross. We were bought with a price. So, Paul says, what should we do? Glorify God in your body. I love it. You know, Paul says, I'm not going to talk about sex without talking about the gospel. I'm not, if we're going to talk about sex, I'm going to point to the cross. Why should a Christian want to live sexually pure? The answer ultimately is because the Son of Man gave his life as a ransom for you, for me. And he desires nothing more than to present us holy and blameless before the Father. Jesus gave his life so that we can be bonded to God. So why should Christians pursue sexual integrity? I've got it summed up. I think this captures the big picture of Paul's thought here. One is because in sex you are more bonded to the other person than you can even imagine. And two, in Christ... We are more bonded, you are more bonded to God than you can even imagine. And then finally, you, and this includes your body and the soul that it houses, are far more precious than you can even imagine. That's the why. What about the how? You know, Paul's answer I think he gives kind of a two-part answer here. He says, flee from sexual immorality and glorify God with your body. People always want to ask, how far can I go without crossing the line? And Paul says, you're asking the wrong question. You're moving in the wrong direction. The question shouldn't be, how, how close to that line can I get without crossing it? The question should be, how much can I glorify God in what I say, think, and do? The, the, the question shouldn't be, if I get, how close can I get to this line with, without God getting ticked off? <laughs> That's the wrong question. The question should be, how can I maximize the glory of God in and through my life? Paul doesn't say, see how close to that line you can get. Paul says, flee. You run from it. Don't flirt with it. Run from it. Don't try to manage that line. Try to escape it. How do you do that? Well, I want to be careful and not fill in the blanks too much because we're all so unique and uh, the details and the challenges and so on of our life, including, including sex and, 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 and where we're at, that battle is very unique. I want to be very careful to not try to fill in the blanks with too much specifics here. But how, do you, how do you flee from sexual immorality? Well, I believe it in, includes uh, that, that we should avoid unnecessary stimulation. Avoid unnecessary, if the app brings too many images into your life that kind of stoke the fire of your lust, delete it. If this might mean that if an interaction with a certain person starts you mentally walking down adulterous roads, 
you might, you might want to change that relationship or put boundaries around it. This, this probably means that if someone is pressuring you to cross sexual lines that you had previously drawn, you might want to dump them. This, this also would mean to know, know, pay attention to yourself. Know the conditions of when you're vulnerable. Know, know the, the time, pay attention to when you're vulnerable sexually. In, in sexual integrity and sexual immorality. Know the times, the, the, the emotions. Pay attention to the emotions that are going on in you when you're vulnerable. The stress level in you, the relational dynamics that are going on. Pay attention to that stuff. And I, and I encourage you not to let your guard down on this. And I would also say, don't fight this thing alone. Don't, you don't wanna fight this alone. Satan would love for every single one of you to think that you're the worst one. You're the only one who, who actually wrestles with it. You're the only one who's ever actually failed sexually. You're worse than everyone else. Look at all those perfect Christians sitting around you. You're the worst. Satan would love for you to buy that nonsense. And don't fight this thing alone. And now flee from sexual immorality. I want you to hear that that's only half the equation, okay? It's only half the equation. Because even fleeing can be uh, an external uh, exercise. Even fleeing can be a polishing of the outside of the cup and not cleaning of the, of the inside. Uh, so don't just run from sexual immorality, but run toward God. Paul says glorify God in your body. That means be proactive in spending your time and using your body in a way that pleases God. And there are, uh, there's a, an endless list of what falls under that umbrella. It may be praying, it may be worshiping, it may be jogging, it may be doing an act of kindness, it may be opening your Bible, it might be seeing a counselor, it may be just calling up a trusted brother or sister in Christ. I tell you what it certainly means. It means paying attention to what's on the inside, what's going on here. If you don't win it here, you're not going to win it out here. But if you try to win it out here without winning it in here, we, we all just kind of become Pharisees, and that's not helpful. All right, flee from sexual immorality and glorify God in your body. And now, just a quick word to the unmarried. Uh, you're not married until you're married. Anyone in here to the unmarried? You're not married, but we're married in God's eyes. No, you're not. All right. Romans 13 says, submit yourself to local governing authorities. So if you're not married in their eyes, you're not married in God's eyes. You're not married until you're married. Oh, we will be married in just a few weeks. Listen, people have broken off engagements with a lot less time than you've got left between now and your wedding, okay? Don't fall into that temptation, but we're gonna be married. We're, we're practically there. Uh, engagements break even, even when you think there's no chance that could ever happen. And would you then take... The, your body, this, this glorious temple of the Holy Spirit, this precious body that, that, that is an extension of Christ's body, and would you join that to someone who's not going to be your spouse? Never. You don't want to do that. Now, my advice to singles who hope to marry, four principles. If you've ever been to Alliance PM, you've probably heard me um, in fact, I should probably have some APMers just get up here and say what they are and test you on them. But number one, focus on friendship. 
Uh, when the infatuation subsides, you got to live with this person, all right? But get, good friends can get through just about anything. Focus on friendship. Two, move toward marriage. If it ain't headed toward marriage, quit messing around. Uh, you're just giving away parts of your heart that you will never get back fully. So focus on friendship. Move toward marriage. Three, and this might be the most important, pursue character, both in yourself and who you are. How, 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 how do you find your way to a successful marriage? Pursue character in yourself and in the other person. Singles, who do you want to marry? I tell you, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That is who you want to marry. Pursue character. And then finally, and this is a bit more um, complex, but build relationship outside the pressure of romance. Meaning, get to know each other if you can. Get to know each other without stoking the fire of your, of, of your love hormones. To try, try, to, try, try to get to know someone and, and, and get to know their character and their vision and their values for, for life. And so I get your questions answered without getting your heart broken, if, if, you, if you can. And especially don't let the sexual intensity that's in you blind you to, to red flags about a person's character. Right? So singles, focus on friendship, move toward marriage, pursue character, and build relationship outside of the pressure of romance. That's my, that's my advice to people who are wanting to get married. And now to a word to all of us. Let's, let's make sure right now and any time we talk about this, let's make sure we end where Paul ended on the gospel. Okay, let's end on the gospel. Guys, marriage isn't heaven. Sex isn't God, and sexual integrity is not the gospel. Purity is not the gospel. Yes, sexual sin is powerful and destructive, but it ain't got nothing on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? If you have crossed lines sexually that you regret, and I want you to hear this, if you wonder, will, is God willing to forgive me? <laughs> I want to draw your attention to the fact that Paul, in addressing this, this letter to the church in Corinth, he calls them sanctified and saints, and then he proceeds in that same letter to explain to at least a portion of these Christians that they should stop having sex with prostitutes, okay? These guys were a mess, but in Christ. They were guiltless. These, these, this church was a mess. People say, well, I wish we'd be more like the early church. And I'm like, which one? I, I don't think we should try to be like the Corinth. Could you, could you imagine? He's, 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 I don't know. He's telling these guys. Uh, the, the, he's having to explain to them why they shouldn't service prostitutes. I don't know of sex and sexual sin more messy so I don't know, and this is what I, I want you to hear this if you only hear one thing this morning. I don't know what lines you have crossed, but you have not outsinned the grace of Jesus. Can you hear that? I don't know what lines you've crossed, but you have not outsinned the grace of Jesus. So my challenge this morning for all of us Whatever the thing is that popped into your mind, 
when I start talking about sexual immorality and sexual integrity, whatever the thing is that popped into your mind, would you surrender to Christ in that area? I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a certain thing. Maybe it's that you need to see a therapist. Maybe it's deleting an account. Maybe it's breaking off a certain relationship. Maybe it's finding a close brother or sister in Christ and talking it through with them. I don't know what it is. Whatever the thing is, though, if, if, if something popped into your mind and you know oh, that's, that's what God's trying to get after, in that thing, would you obey Christ? Would you resolve now to obey Christ in that area? Now, would you stand if you are able? And would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, this is a, this is a hard topic. Um, it's a hard topic because it's close to us. It's a hard topic because it's confusing. It's messy. But I, I believe, God, that we in this church genuinely want to live for you in every area. And we know, God, that you desire to be Lord of every area of our life. And that would include even our sex life, our thought life, intimacy, our relationships. And so, God, help us. Help us to be your people in this way. And I pray, God, that there would be no shame attached to people about their sexual sin from this message. Would you remove them as you so powerfully remove the shackles of our sin? We thank you that in Christ we are so bonded to God. We thank you for sex that we would have this beautiful way of so bonding with our spouse. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be a church that gets, gets this right, not, not a church that cleans the outside of the cup but doesn't pay attention to the inside, Lord. But you, would you help us be people who, who pay attention to, to the heart? And I pray that in Jesus' name. And now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And God's people said, amen. amen. Have a wonderful week, church. We'll see you next Sunday.